but they believe in him in the wrong way. They're affirming something that they like about him, but they're not believing in him as bread. They're not consuming him as he demands to be believed upon. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part four of Living the Assured Life, a study in 1 John from Pastor Paul Twiss. The New Testament contains four gospels, or narratives, of the earthly ministry of Jesus. It also contains many letters, largely written by apostles to the first century churches. Pastor's text is 1 John, the first of three letters written by the Apostle John to those churches. Pastor Paul is with us today to help us understand this sometimes difficult letter. So, Pastor Paul, you say that in these letters from John, there are ideas that refer back to his own gospel. That's right. Many of the ideas in John's gospel are reinforced in his subsequent letters. In chapter 6 of the gospel, John recalls Jesus chiding his followers about their motives. They wanted free bread. They were not putting their faith in him as the Messiah. And at that point, there's a transition in Jesus's earthly ministry, which is a sad one. He insisted his true followers would receive him as the bread of life. Because that didn't sit well with many of them, we then read in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The sheep were separated from the goats, so to speak, as some of his so-called disciples turned against him on the road to his eventual crucifixion. Now, going back to John's first letter, we see there that he's writing to true believers, trying to encourage them that they have genuinely put their faith in Christ in the face of not just false disciples, but now false teachers. Very helpful. Thank you, Pastor. Interesting how history repeats itself, doesn't it? Here's part four of Living the Assured Life. This evening's text, 1 John 5, 6 through 12, the Word of God reads, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So reads the word of the living God. My Googling skills this week have led me to learn of one of the most successful advertising campaigns in all of American history, 
launched in 1993 by the California Milk Board. This advertising campaign continues even to this day, at least in California, and it revolved around a two-word slogan coupled with some milk-moustached adverts. The aim of the campaign was to persuade people to buy more milk in larger quantities, and it was successful. And the slogan, as you know, was got milk, question mark. I remember the first time I ever saw that when we came here, my first thought was, that's not even a sentence. <laughs> But who am I to say what will influence people? Uh, it was successful, and I was reminded of it this week as I studied this text and understood that John, in this paragraph, is in a more subtle way, indirect way, asking if we have got Jesus. Have you got Jesus? He says in verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, John is not asking the question in the same way as that campaign was asking the question of milk in your refrigerator. John doesn't care about whether you can accommodate more Jesus in your life. John is not coming at this issue with a concern for whether you care to buy more of Christ. He doesn't care whether you might be able to fit him into more areas in your life. In a related way, we might say John really doesn't care for your approval of the Son. John's not asking you whether you're giving a thumbs up to Jesus and his ministry. He doesn't listen for an amen from you concerning the testimony of the Son of God. He's really not concerned with what you think of Jesus. That's not the question John is asking, or, or that's not the issue that he's, he's addressing when he talks about having the Son. It's at the end of this letter that we again find something of a, a unique way of, of John phrasing a particular issue. Here in chapter 5, as we come to the end of the letter, for the first time he talks about belief in a possessing kind of way. This is the first time in the letter that he's talked about belief with a verb to have. All the way through, we're used to him talking about the one who believes or the one who abides. But it's right towards the end that he says the one who has, the one who possesses. And this is, this is a new way of putting it in 1 John right at the end. And I believe it's because John wants to impress Jesus upon you in the most forceful way that he knows how. I really think John is taking his lead here from Jesus himself in John's gospel. So often when we're in 1 John, what we see is that the theology of this letter has been influenced by the gospel and Jesus' words in that gospel. One of the most fascinating studies that you could ever do in John's gospel is to look at all of the metaphors that Jesus uses there. Jesus shows up in John's gospel and he says, I am the bread of life. It's in John's gospel that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the, the gate for the sheep. I am the vine. And on and on he goes, all of these metaphors that we find in John's gospel, a metaphor simply stated is a way of bringing the, the subject as close as you can to the object in the sentence. Jesus could have said, by way of example, I am nourishing to you. I am satisfying. If you follow me, 
you'll find pleasure. And in that sense, you can compare me to something like bread. That's a very long sentence, and there's a long distance between the subject, namely Jesus, and the object, bread, at the very end. And because of that long distance between the subject and the object, the word picture is not nearly so impactful. Interestingly, that's how we tend to speak today. We're very occupied and consumed with the idea of explaining everything to the nth degree, so we separate the subject and the object with lots of explanation. Jesus could have said, I am like bread. Now the subject and the object are much closer together, and now we get a sense of that word picture. But we're still not close enough. Jesus brings it even closer, and he does it with a metaphor, and he says, I am bread. Jesus shows up and he says, I'm bread. I am the bread of life. And his intention is that you would think upon that metaphor and the word picture would impress itself upon your heart. Indeed, Jesus himself would be impressed upon your heart and your mind and you would understand completely what he means by that. Now think about the next line, just with that one metaphor as an example, we might expect that Jesus goes on from there to talk about what? Eating. He just said he's bread, so we might expect the, ne- the very next thing that he talks about is, is eating. But he doesn't do that. He says, believe in me. I'm the bread of life. Believe. So he changes the word picture out of nowhere. And the point is that that informs the manner in which we are to believe upon Jesus. We all intuitively understand that what Jesus is saying is that the way in which I demand for you to believe upon me is in a partaking kind of way. It is only in a consuming kind of way. It's in the, in the kind of way that you would eat bread. That's how I need to be believed upon. That's what Jesus is saying with that word picture. And in fact, with that particular example, as you know, as we go on in John's gospel, he even says, You have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you want any part of me. With that particular example, he makes it quite explicit. This is the kind of belief that I demand. You see, what you find as you read through John's gospel is that there is only one kind of belief that is permitted. And as I've said before, one of the issues in John's gospel is this growing crowd around Jesus that believe in him, but they believe in him in the wrong way. They're affirming something that they like about him, but they're not believing in him as bread. They're not consuming him as he demands to be believed upon. Jesus has time for only one kind of belief. Jesus wants you to believe upon him, to partake of him in the same way that you would partake of oxygen, the same way that you would consume water. You wouldn't go one day without drinking water. You wouldn't go 10 seconds without taking in air. And all of these metaphors in John's gospel, he is saying, that is the way in which you need to believe upon me. The abiding that I want for you is that kind of abiding, where I define your very life, where you are defined by me and only by me. Or to put it negatively, Jesus allows zero room for you to stand at a distance and say, I believe in Jesus. That doesn't cut it in John's gospel. 
He doesn't allow you to stand at the edge and say, I affirm this man. I like his ministry, and and in that sense, I'm a Christian. When you think about those word pictures, Jesus leaves no option on the table besides a consuming kind of belief. That's why you can't say of Jesus that he was a good teacher. You are not permitted to say that of Christ because it's given to you nowhere as an option. If Jesus were here today, if John were here today and you stood up and said, I think Jesus was a good teacher, they would say, no, you can't say that. Because the way that I presented the narrative, I never gave you that option. You have two options and that's it. Either you outright reject this man or you consume him. That's all you've got. And in a very similar way, at the end of 1 John, same author, at the end of 1 John, he invokes new language for belief in Jesus. He uses the verb of having. He who has the Son. The believing, the abiding that I've been talking about for five chapters now, I want you to think of it in terms of having. He who has the Son in a consuming kind of way. Now, I've said before, 1 John is not an overtly evangelistic letter. These are one of the few letters in the New Testament where we have a stated aim. And the aim, as we've said many times, is to give assurance to Christians In that sense, 1 John is written to believers as a very, very comforting five chapters of the New Testament. His stated aim is not to win souls for Christ, but to encourage those that have been bought. Now, that's not to say that these words might be used by the Lord to to win souls for Christ. With all of that said, I do think if there is one place in the letter where John gets close to making something of an appeal, it would be here. In our tech tonight, what we'll see here is that the way in which John builds his argument actually constructs for us two paths. Perhaps more so than anywhere else in this letter, it does seem that John is here making an appeal by drawing out two paths, either one of having the son or of rejecting him. And why, why would he do that? We need to think of the question of why and and why at this portion of the letter, and I believe it would be that John understands that as he writes to these Christians, as he writes to this one particular church, he's aware that there's a very strong possibility that even within that congregation, there are those that assemble every Sunday and yet do not have Jesus. They look like a Christian in so many ways. They're always they're always present, and yet he knows that quite possibly they may not have Jesus in a saving, assuring kind of way. The reason that they may not have assurance is because they don't have Christ. And so it is important, even within the context of this incredibly comforting and encouraging letter, that John addresses the issue of unbelief within the congregation. And The manner in which John does that is to to draw out these crossroads, though we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. That comes right at the very end. Before that, he has some groundwork to cover. Following on from last week, where he talked about the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world, almost like a a drop-down menu, he now explains that idea just a little bit further. He gives us a little bit more explanation as to who this man is. Jesus is. 
who the Son of God is. And, and beyond that, he then goes on to explain how it is that we can believe in him, how it is that we can be sure that he was who he said he was. And then he confronts us with the question of whether you have Jesus. So let's look at his argument, starting in verse 6, explaining who is this Christ. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, as ever in 1 John, we have to keep in mind the false teaching that had been circulating within this congregation. And verse 6 informs us that it seems like there was a point of agreement between what John had taught them and what the false teachers were teaching them. The point of agreement would seem to be that Jesus came by water. The false teachers would affirm that, just as John had taught them. But the point of disagreement is that he also came by the blood. That seems to be the point that the the false teachers had denied. So the question arises for us, what does it mean that Jesus came by the water and the blood? And this is one of the interpretive issues in 1 John. Many interpretations offered over the course of church history. One interpretation suggested that the water is our baptism into the body of Christ, and that the blood is our taking of communion, our continuing on in the body of Christ. And while that is a nice meditative thought, there really is nothing in the context to suggest that that is what John is speaking about here. Another interpretation points to Jesus' side on the cross. As the spear went in, we have in the gospel account the fact that water and blood came out. And it would seem maybe there's some validity to that, except it gets quite tricky when you think about what it means to refute that. If indeed the false teachers were agreeing with the water part and not the blood part, is that to say in some way they were saying there was no blood at the cross? Then it starts to get a little bit nonsensical. Actually, I think the the best interpretation and the most popular is simply that the water refers to Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his public ministry, And the blood refers to the cross at the end of his public ministry. Now, the reason that that is important for John to state is because the false teachers had denied that the God-man was the God-man for his whole ministry. So a reference to the water, his baptism, and a reference to the blood, his death, form bookends to Jesus' life. And what John is saying here is that Jesus Christ the Son of God, was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from beginning to end. He never wasn't Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The teaching that they had been fed was that he was the God-man at the beginning and for some time in his earthly ministry, but when he hung on the cross, no longer. All we see there is a man to be pitied because the Spirit of God has left him. And John is saying that is not the case. You cannot believe that. You have to accept that he is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, from the very beginning to the very end. His whole life, he is truly man and truly God. And in fact, you need this truth for the gospel to work. The gospel falls apart in your hands when he is no longer the God-man from beginning to end. We need Jesus' perfect life 
every minute of his earthly ministry, he never, ever sinned. He never transgressed. He never grumbled in his heart. He never thought a thought that didn't fully honor the Father. All his words were perfect and true. We need that perfect life. Because then that sets up for the perfect death, the criminal's death on the cross. Having done nothing wrong, he is now the perfect substitute. And if at any point he is not fully God and fully man, the gospel collapses. You no longer have any salvation to depend upon. He is no longer the savior. So John urges this upon his readers. This indeed has been the emphasis all the way through the letter as far as Christ is concerned. All the way through the letter, he talks about his incarnational reality, the fact that he came, he was in the flesh, but at the same time, he was eternally true. He was eternally there. He never was not. And so what we see in him is the God-man. That's who the Savior is, and that's who he needs to be, so that when you look at Christ on the cross, what you see is a Savior and nothing less. When you see the blood of Christ running down his body, you see the blood of salvation. And you know that your sins have been dealt with. Now just imagine, if you can, for a minute, that there was uncertainty in your mind concerning that truth. Imagine that you came here every Sunday... And you didn't hear the truth of the gospel rehearsed in singing. That we did not sing hymns that spoke about Jesus being the perfect substitute on the cross. Imagine that as you were led in prayer in public worship services, the gospel was not rehearsed. Imagine that as you sat under the preaching of God's word, the gospel was not referenced. Imagine that as you enjoyed fellowship with the saints, the gospel was never a matter of conversation. Eventually, at some point, on the drive home, you would just start to question whether it really was true. Eventually, at some point, as you get home, you wouldn't be so excited to come back again. At some point in your daily life, Monday through Saturday, you would not run eagerly into prayer because you're just not so sure anymore whether the God that you're praying to is the God of wrath or a loving heavenly father. At some point, it starts to affect the way in which you share the gospel. When you engage with your next door neighbor on a Saturday afternoon, you're not so eager now to talk about church, to talk about the things of the Lord, because there's just an element of uncertainty in your heart as to whether Jesus really does save. And as you teach your children, it's just a lack of confidence as you instruct them in the way of Scripture. And they pick up on it. They sense it. You're just not so sure anymore. Doesn't it just seem a world away? And yet that's exactly the situation that John's readers were facing. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. The Apostle doesn't mince words in this letter to the first century churches. Christ had promised his disciples they would receive power from the Holy Spirit, and they did. But they were not excused from experiencing trials and dealing with false teachers. As believers, 
we shouldn't be surprised when we experience some of the same challenges. But as Jesus encouraged us to take heart because he has overcome the world. Want to hear more? Want to learn more about living in victory over the world by following Jesus? Visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts on the homepage, and there you'll find our free audio archive of Pastor Paul's teachings on the good news of Jesus. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. As the weekend approaches and Sunday's coming, if you don't have a local church, you're invited to come worship with us this Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Bethany Bible Church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us tomorrow, part five in our series, Living the Assured Life. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.